I think this this myth is a is a very strong myth, and it's very undermining of someone's ability to to pursue their recovery to full health. Um, you can you can imagine that uh, if the sense that your body is fragile and vulnerable, and as you continue to do activity, you're more likely to damage yourself more and have more pain in the future. Uh, it, it becomes a bit of a, a lost battle. Welcome back to episode 18 of the Empowered Beyond Pain podcast, proudly brought to you by Bodylogic Physiotherapy. In this episode, I welcome back Dr. JP Kinero. JP is a specialist physiotherapist and has a PhD in musculoskeletal physiotherapy, where his main topic was investigating high pain-related fear in people with low back pain. This episode is kind of at the core, and that's a pun intended after our last episode, but it's at the core of our question, is there more to pain than damage? I think you'll find that there's so much to relate to in this episode that will hopefully help you understand more about pain and help empower you on the road to growth. Thanks again for your valued attention. If this podcast resonates with you and is helping, please consider sharing it with someone else who it may help. Maybe someone with pain or someone that treats people with pain reach out via EBP podcast on the socials and let us know what you want us to discuss and check out the show notes for this episode at www.bodylogic.physio forward slash podcast. There you'll find links to relevant and helpful resources as well as references and a transcript. So wherever you're listening or watching this on YouTube, we're so grateful that we get to bring evidence to your eardrums and help make sense of science for you each fortnight. We'll start today's episode by hearing fact eight from the 10 facts about back pain paper presented by patient voice and guest on episode 14 and 16 B Joe. And remember to ask, is there more to pain than damage? Backs do not wear out with everyday loading and bending. The same way lifting weights makes muscles stronger, moving and loading make the back stronger and healthier. So activities like running, twisting, bending and lifting are safe if you start gradually and practice regularly. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We're welcoming back JP. JP hasn't appeared on the podcast for a while, so huge welcome back to you, mate. Um, today we're discussing episode, uh, this eight, episode 18, we're discussing fact eight from the Back Facts paper. Um, the fact is that backs don't wear out with everyday loading and bending. This comes about from the myth of that repeated spinal loading results in wear and tear and tissue damage. And I'm looking forward to discussing um, yeah, where the facts come and the evidence behind that fact. I guess it's a pretty common belief that we see in people with pain. And I'm talking probably specifically about back pain, but it actually applies to knee pain, neck pain, and most pain really. Um, and, and that belief is that the, the pain is because of wear and tear of their structure uh, and that they should stop moving and loading that specific structure because it will wear out even more and eventually they'll end up you know, crippled, old, disabled in a wheelchair. Um, and if they're this bad and in this much pain now, they're often worried about what they're going to be like in 5, 10, 15, 50 years' time. So I guess what are some of the... Um, some other examples or stories people come and see us with some common um, beliefs around this this narrative yeah thanks Kev. Uh, i think this this myth is a is a very strong myth and it's very undermining of someone's ability to to pursue their recovery to full health um, you can you can imagine that uh, if the sense that your body is fragile and vulnerable and as you continue to do activity you're more likely to damage yourself more and have more pain in the future. Uh, it, it becomes a bit of a, a lost battle because you, you, you know, we are all aging with time. Uh, and if we are creating this wear and tear now, and what happens if I play more soccer? What happens if I continue on going my, on my bushwalks? Uh, and that becomes really undermining of people's confidence in their body. And, uh, you know, fortunately, the evidence uh, doesn't support that, that. You know, there's mounting or growing evidence uh, that supports several other factors that influence someone's pain experience. Uh, and smaller uh, amount of, um, of or little evidence to support that only damage is responsible for, uh, for someone's pain experience. So some of the examples that we see... Uh, uh, patients that come up with uh, with a history of back pain or with uh, presenting with back pain, 
that their world has reduced because of uh, daily activities they, they used to do habitually without thinking now become uh, became sensitized. And every day they need to think about the, the tasks that they are doing and they're thinking about how they posture themselves, if they should do it or not, uh, you know, how they should pick up a shoe from the ground, how they should empty the dishwasher. Uh, and, and behind this concern about that task uh, is this belief that if they do such task that is painful, it means that they're causing more damage to their body. And that this is an inherent uh, vulnerability that we, that we carry in our society or a perception that we carry in our society because it's a really strong belief that pain equals damage. You know, if we think back uh, in the day, you, you develop pain, you go to see the doctor, the doctor sends you for a scan. Uh, that's the first time you're getting a scan in any body part and that body part will very likely demonstrate some age-related changes. And so in the past, we used to be very quick at associating those changes in the scan with the pain experience that you have. Uh, and unfortunately, this continues to occur these days. But if we, um, if we look at the evidence, uh, we, we are not standing on a very strong ground to make that relationship. Um, and, and oftentimes, we, we see patients that go on to have a scan and they have a, a, a good looking scan, a very healthy looking spine on an image, which doesn't match with the pain experience they have. You know, I saw a, a, a gentleman last week who's, um, who has a very distressful uh, pain experience over the last seven months. And, and this guy is really struggling. And the only finding he's got on his MRI is a minor disc bulge at L4-5. And, and he's a 42-year-old man with a long history of playing sports. Uh, and so you look at, that, at the relationship of his pain experience, he's completely disabled. Uh, he can't sit for more than five minutes. He can't stand for more than 10 minutes. He stopped walking. Uh, he struggles to, to, um, to make his kids breakfast in the morning. You know, he'll do a Vegemite sandwich and then he'll have to lie down on the couch for 10 minutes and then he'll stand up again to try and complete the other sandwich. Uh, and there he goes. Um, so it's a very distressing pain experience that led to significant visibility. But when you look at the scan, for, 40, uh, for you know, any male 42-year-old uh, that has a scan of their back, it's very unlikely that you won't present uh, a minor disc bulge. Mm. Uh, and as a matter of fact, on, on examination, when you, um, when you load that segment, it was sensitized, uh, but palpating his spine he wasn't sensitized. Palpating the muscles around the spine, he was very sensitized. So he was sore to touch on the muscles, but not sore to touch on the spine. But despite that, he was bracing and guarding his back because his belief was that in every action that he was taking and every task that he was performing that was painful, that that meant that he was further creating damage to his spine. And exactly like you said, said, you know, I played football all my life. I'm only 42 years old. I want to continue uh, doing physical activity with my kids. Uh, but what is it going to be in the future? If I'm at that state, you know, I only have this small change in my back and my life is ruined. What happens if as I get older, I have more changes in my, in my skin? So it kind of, uh, uh, it, it leads people in this in this path that is really hard to uh, to shift from, and and the tricky thing with pain is that it's a felt experience in your body. So those warning signs they um, they alert you in every movement that you that you're doing on a daily basis. So this guy he wakes up and he feels pain in his back immediately. His body is, goes into a protective uh, response. And, and that protection carries on. So initially, he, de uh, he developed some pain um, in a context that was very stressful, a uh, very stressful time in his life. Uh, and he first felt his pain sitting in his office. So sitting was the first task to become painful. But very quickly, 
he started avoiding bending. He changed the way he picked up his kids. He changed the way that he would sit in the car. He changed the way that he was going for walks. Now he avoids walking, swimming, picking up his kids. So you can see this generalization of avoidance, which are entirely based on warning signs that he gets from his body. So he feels discomfort, he feels pain, therefore he shouldn't do it. So his, his world has reduced. And initially he was sitting and now he, he's afraid of twisting. He's afraid of lifting his arms above his head because that bends his back backwards. Mm. You know, he's on Google looking at what happens with the disc when you do all these movements. Mm. And, and let me tell you, the information that you find is not very uh, supportive of movement on the internet, unfortunately. Um, so this belief can have a significant impact. And, and this is a patient who I, who I asked, I said, what do you think it happens the more you use your back? Well, I have more pain. And, and what do you think it means? Well, it means that I'm causing more damage. And, you know, and, and I've been told by other professionals that usually if one disc is gone, uh, I will tend to wear out the disc above or the disc below. And, mm. you know, so it, it just kind of, uh, um, it goes on an on a, on a, on a avalanche of yeah. disability. Snowballs. Yeah, and snowballs. And, the, and the, the, the interesting thing with him was that he had an epidural to supposedly the source of his pain. And he had a day or two of pain reduction. And that was it. Mm. It wasn't even a significant change. And that baffled him because he's going, you know, you put this corticosteroid injection in my back right at the source of the pain. Why am I not better? Mm. You know, why, if that's the source of the pain. So you can see this, the same person that strongly, belie strongly believes that the disc is the source of his pain and that the more that he does creates more wearing and tearing is confused by the fact that he had an injection, an intervention on the source of the pain and he had close to zero effect. Mm. Uh, so, so this guy is pretty distraught in, in, in that situation. And to change someone's, uh, to shift away from that idea that you should protect your body, that you should guard your body to, towards an idea that actually movement is healthy for your body uh, it can be a really tricky, tricky transition. Yeah, absolutely. And you can kind of see that that's quite a, if, if that's his belief, if his belief that every time he feels pain, he's making his condition worse, he's making his disc bulge worse, then it's quite a common sense response to start avoiding those things if that's the meaning that you attribute to what, what the pain actually means. Uh, and I think you sort of, I, I guess it kind of comes down to one of the key messages that we talk about in this podcast around questioning, you know, um, is there more to pain than tissue damage? And, and that uncoupling of that relationship between pain not necessarily being a direct relationship or a direct reflection of, of what's going on at a tissue level. Um, and, and I was hoping we could kind of talk about some, maybe some more examples uh, around how t pain and tissue damage aren't that well related. Uh, but before we do that, I just wanted to sort of clarify um, this person's, you know, this case, this case that you're talking about. So is it fair to say that his pain that he was feeling perhaps wasn't coming from his disc and maybe it was coming more from his muscles by the sound of it, um, potentially clenching all the time? Uh, and that's probably quite a, you know, a, a reductionist approach or a very simple way to look at pain. And, and we know that pain is, is a lot more complex than that. But I was wondering if you could kind of talk to, talk to what was causing his pain or what is causing his pain. So, so it's really hard to say, um, but, but I, I have no question that his back structures were sensitized. And that would be his disc, his, uh, his ligament, his joints. Uh, because the way that he was protecting his body was by bracing his body. You know, this is a guy that's sitting across from me and his, you know, his breathing was really shallow. He was bracing his belly while sitting in a chair. So the amount of load that he was putting in his back was quite significant for a task like you and I are doing right now, which is just sitting and we are supported by our bodies, our chair, the chair, and our bellies are not tensing up. Uh, so 
what exact structure was sensitized, I'm not sure. And perhaps the, the, the L45 minor dispouch could be sensitized. And it makes sense. You know, if you, if you have a sore wrist and you're squishing that wrist all the time, you know, if both of us continue this conversation for the next 40 minutes doing this, you know, it's very likely that that wrist will be a bit uncomfortable. And if we repeat that tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, and I go and I brush my teeth like this, and I start doing other tasks like this, it's very likely that my wrist will be um, sensitized. And so in my understanding of his presentation, the, the behavior that he was adopting right now, seven months down the track, wasn't very helpful. Mm. But that was identified through an examination where he was given an option of offloading his back and learning how to relax his back and sitting in a more relaxed manner. And then you're sitting for, uh, for nearly 10 minutes without feeling any more discomfort. Mm. And, and that was, a, a, was a, a, an experience, a felt experience, uh, that he wasn't getting the same warning signs that he usually does. Mm. And that was a way into his belief system to challenge that, where he's going, look, I. I I feel like I should be protecting, but actually when I'm not protecting as much, it feels better. Mm. You know, how is that possible? And that, that, that's for the, it's the job that the clinician has uh, to, to challenge that. So, in, you know, you look at the, uh, at the mechanism, you know, he started feeling pain when he was sitting in his office. You know, he sat on his dad office for a number of years. Mm. And, but what was the context of that? Mm. And there were significant uh, personal stresses in his life that led to changes in his sleep, led to changes in his physical activity, led to changes in the amount of hours that he was working and that he was more sedentary. And then his back became sensitized. You know, I'm not saying that this, they were the causes of that, but that's the context in which his back became sensitive. Mm. And soon after that, you know, several other activities in his daily daily life became demonized because of that discomfort. Yeah, because you felt so, the pain, right? Yeah, so I think it's really important for, for people to, to understand that daily tasks such as bending to tie your shoes or to pick something from the floor, lifting your child or picking up the, the garbage or you know, turning back to put your seatbelt or to speak to your son on the back, uh, on the back seat of the car, you know, things that we do on a daily basis, they often are provocative in people that have back pain. Or I should say that people come in to see us often report those activities as being painful. So uh, what does that mean? Does that mean that those activities causes pain? They cause pain? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that your back is sore. And when you do those activities, those activities can be make your back sensitive, right? So, but you've been doing those activities for the majority of your life. But now during this period of time, they became a bit sensitized. So what we need to do is to identify, uh, you know, why you're sensitized. What are the factors that we can actually change uh, that can potentially reduce that sensitivity? And it's fair if you develop pain after doing, let's say, gardening, you develop some back pain. And then the next day, taking the bin out is a bit sore. Picking up your kids is a bit sore. Uh, going for a run is a bit sore. And maybe you take it easy for a couple of days and you let your body settle, settle, and, and then you get back to doing these activities again. Uh, and oftentimes we get patients that come in to see us that they um, gradually stop doing those everyday activities or they continue to do it, but they do it protecting their bodies. Mm -hmm. And when you ask them, many may say that they are doing that consciously because they know that they shouldn't bend. And they might even tell you that, you know, I, I have these um, posters at my work demonstrating how you should bend and lift and how you should sit. Uh, and I never really paid attention to that. You know, it's something that you look every day, but you don't pay attention. But now, now I'm really mindful of it. And from now on, I'm going to take care of my body. And how is that going for you? Well, it's not better yet, but that's what I should be doing. 
right? So people can change their behavior based on the symptoms that they have, despite the fact that the new behavior doesn't really change their pain experience. Mm. Um, and, and I guess what, what we need to, um, what we need to understand is that moving your body can help to reduce sensitivity in your body and it can create more health in your body. So let's get an example of um, osteoarthritis or commonly perceived as uh, knee wear and tear, mm -hmm. right? So your cartilage had enough uh, and, you, uh, and you ran too much or you played footy too much and that's the reason why your cartilage doesn't look very good today. You know, that's a very common belief. And the cartilage itself, if you rest the knee, if you immobilize the knee, if you protect the knee, what we see is that the, the health of the cartilage reduces. The cartilage becomes drier, becomes less able to, um, to produce movement with ease. On the other hand, if you get a sore uh, joint and you gradually uh, provide, promote movement in that joint in a way that is not highly provocative and you do it regularly and consistently, what we see is that cartilage actually uh, looks healthier and responds in a healthier manner. What does that mean? It means that it's not as stiff. It moves better. Uh, you have, uh, it's less provocative. But to be able to start moving a painful knee joint, you have to go past the barrier that the more movement you do with that knee joint will create more wear and tear. Mm. Yeah, and that's why this belief is so undermining. Mm. And if we look at, if we look at um, from a clinician perspective, right? You look at the work that, that or the, 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 the shift in management of tendon pain tendinopathies, right? In the past, used to be, you know, protect the tendon, rest the tendon, uh, avoid physical activity. And over time, that changed significantly. And today, you, the, a large proportion of clinicians, uh, and perhaps even the public, will start thinking that you actually need to exercise the tendon, because the tendon gets healthier and and become stronger with movement and load that is provided gradually, correct? Yeah, and with adequate rest as well, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's it's like the the, the capacity demand um, balance, you know, the seesaw that we see that we, that we have. Uh, so if the demands are high and the capacity of the tendon is low, you gradually build that up. So what does that tell you? Tell us. It tells us that. A tendon, if stimulated in a consistent, gradual um, manner, can become healthier, right? And we look and and if we go into it, we can see tendons that have significant changes on an ultrasound or an MRI that can become able to tolerate and produce load, such as running, jumping, playing basketball, volleyball, and etc. Mm -hmm. So there and then we have an example of a structure that on a scan, it could be labeled as damaged, but it doesn't reflect the capacity of the person. The person is back doing the activities. And what that created for clinicians like ourselves, it gives us confidence to get patients to gradually load their tendons, right? Where if you have pain that is acceptable, that is tolerable, and it doesn't um, influence too much your daily activities, you continue stimulating the tendon with that load, right? Now, when we move to osteoarthritis, we are kind of playing catch up now. And we see some really good work that is coming out to demonstrate that the same principle applies. If you get someone that has significant changes on a, on a, on a, on a, on a tibiofemoral joint and they have pain with doing activities such as getting up from a chair, or bending down to pick something on the floor and they can barely, barely use their leg, but you gradually in, um, build the tolerance to, to load on that knee joint and you do it not completely pain-free, 
you actually accept that having some discomfort is part of the process. And, and for patients, that's a really tough idea to, mm. to, to grapple with. Uh, but the ones that, uh, that experience that, it's a winner because you, you start realizing that well, actually I can do a little bit more and my pain doesn't change. Mm. And as they keep going, you know, there's some data to demonstrate of patients that were on a wait list to get a knee replacement and that embarked on a, on a knee rehabilitation program to exercise their knees. And, for, and that, you know, for six weeks. And for the first three or four weeks, their pain either didn't change or increased a little. And after that, the pain reduced. And 80% of patients in that group decided against having surgery mm. for one and then two years after the, after the program, right? So that, what does that tell us? They aged over those two years. Their joint probably looks a bit different, uh, you know, in a more negative way, but their capacity to tolerate their daily activities and the things that they want to do has increased. And it's not sensitized. Yeah, maybe their pain's decreased as well. Exactly. Now, what we see now is seeing clinicians feeling more confident to tell their patients that the scan at times is a big part of the puzzle, but at times is not a big part of the puzzle. But in both situations, uh, we have to reduce the sensitivity of the joint. And for those who are, um, who are not clinicians listening to us, what we mean by that is to make the joint a little less sore, make you, you know, reduce how uh, much discomfort is caused in a body part when you use it. Mm-hmm. And so we have clinicians telling patients that it's okay to feel a bit of discomfort. And that's part of the process. Now, when it comes to back pain, which is probably one of or the most uh, researched body part uh, or pain experience that there is uh, in musculoskeletal health. We don't see as many clinicians confident to tell their patients to continue to bend despite their discomfort. We often see, uh, uh, and we've all been guilty of that, of telling someone to bend forward and they experience some discomfort and you say, well, okay, so let's just back off a little bit. So then the message that we are implying in that examination is that if I feel pain with the movement, I shouldn't do it, right? And that goes directly in line with the belief that if I use my body, my body and it's painful, something wrong is happening. And that may, be, may not be conscious on the clinician part and mm. on the patient part, but it taps into societal beliefs. You know, if you ask any JP on the street about uh, what do they think about pain and damage and what do they think about using their back when it's sore and what do they think about bending and twisting and lifting and twisting you know they are dangerous activities for our backs and so if I have pain with bending and twisting therefore I'm in a in a danger zone right and it's uh, my beliefs are aligned with my experience. Therefore, I shouldn't do it. And perhaps the way I was doing before put me at risk to that. And, and that's been a, 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 um, uh, an assumption that's been pushed uh, in, in, you know, in research and in, in society. Uh, but luckily, we know today that, that, that there isn't a lot of evidence to back that up. There is growing evidence to demonstrate that Actually, the, the task that you do, while it can be provocative, it can make you feel sore when you do it, uh, it's rarely the sole cause of the problem. And actually, becoming uh, more able to do that very task, and, but doing that in a graduated manner, it's the way out of, uh, or the way to recovery and to be able to go back to doing your, your daily activities with less pain or with no pain. Yeah. So I, I guess what I'm, uh, this, this myth is a, is a, it's a really important myth to be, um, uh, to be argued against because it can really undermine someone's capacity 
to move forward with their lives. Mm. So I, um, I saw someone yesterday who had a, a, a terrible car accident. You know, a young person with a significant car accident that happened uh, just over a year ago. And you look at the scans and the scans are not bad at all. And uh, so at the most she had, but, but you know, this person's neck became really sensitized uh, from that task, from that uh, accident. And as a consequence, there's a, there's a behavior, a defense mechanism that is embodied. So it's like this embodiment of cautious and protective movement in which if I'm going to turn my neck, if I'm going to turn my body, it should be in a protective way mm. because something happened to my body that hasn't healed properly yet. And we know that you know, majority of body parts, they would heal after four weeks or six weeks. You know, a broken bone would, would heal after four weeks. Um, but it can continue to be sensitized despite the initial problem that you had. Now you look at when you dig deep into this person's uh, understanding of their problem, that belief that as you use that body part and you get pain means that you're causing more damage. And if the more they use the body part, the more pain you get, therefore you're causing more and more damage. So that is a, it's like trying to move forward with your life with a handbrake on. Mm. It doesn't work very well. You know, and, and, and we look at the data of uh, probably the most common signature of people with pain uh, is that they move less, they move slower, you know, and, and as they get better, their tendency is to move faster and to not be as tense and guarded. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. that just, uh, it kind of reflects this common protective mechanism that can be really useful in an acute stage. It can be really useful after a trauma, not only useful, but necessary. Yeah, protective. Uh, yeah, but at some point, at some stage, we need to move away from that and uh, rescue back our ability to do the daily activities that we always done. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That was really nicely explained. And I think um, at the heart of that um, barrier is, like you said, that belief that pain must mean you're, you're wearing out or causing further damage. Um, and, and what we're saying really is the what it comes down to is that this relationship between pain and damage just isn't as clear as what we used to think it was. It's not that strong. And, and I kind of want to talk about a few examples of that. So I'm sure everyone's had a paper cut or everyone, you know, you can imagine pulling the little bit of your skin next to your thumb off. And, and that's quite a painful experience. I've done that before. And it's, you know, I would rate that as, as quite painful. Um, but if you think about how much damage is going on in your thumb, when you get a paper cutter, when you're pulling that little bit of skin off, there's not really that much damage. So that's an example where you can have high levels of pain um, and, and not really much damage whatsoever. Uh, on the flip side of that, I'm sure most people listening would have these mystery bruises that just seem to appear out of nowhere, you know, on their legs or just on their knees or somewhere like that. And they're thinking, look, I don't know um, how that got there. I have no idea how I got that. I have no recollection of, of any trauma that has happened that's caused that internal bleeding. Um, but so I don't feel any pain, but there's clearly been tissue damage there. Um, you know, so that's an example, you know, opposite ends of the scale um, where, where these, this relationship just isn't really there. And I suppose it speaks to the meaning that we put behind the pain. Um, we, Sorry. You go. No, I was going, going on, 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 on examples. Like I, I'll give mm. you a personal example. Mm-hmm. As a young uh, child, four or five years old, I was diagnosed with uh, what is called Perthes uh, disease. And for those that don't know what that is, it basically means it's a, a, a very early onset of the generation of the cartilage of your hip joint. So it's almost like at a very young age, you know, your one hip joint uh, grows up to become a little ball and the other one grows up to become 
a little mushroom. <laughs> you okay. know, it, yeah. Yeah. It becomes, oh, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It becomes a significant change from one mm. side to the other. And as you get older or as you grow up, the changes become even worse. So I, uh, you know, I had some discomfort initially, but then growing up, I didn't have much pain at all in my head. And going through the university, my university degree, I remember taking my x-rays to clinicians, to you know, surgeons, to doctors, to lecturers, and everyone that looked at my x-ray, they were diagnosed as having hip osteoarthritis, which would fit the criteria of the scan. Mm-hmm. And that I, the only way out was surgery. But there I was playing soccer badly, by the way. Uh, Even running. for a Brazilian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why I moved to Australia. They right. kicked me out of the country. <laughs> so clear now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but there I was doing several other activities not, with no pain experience whatsoever. Mm. So I've been carrying that significant change in my hip with no pain. Then at times in my life, I decided to start new activities that required a little bit more of my hip. So I needed a little bit more range. Uh, for instance, cycling, I needed to be sitting in a, in a deeper hip flexion or I was doing a rowing ergometer. And initially I didn't have the mobility in my hip and I didn't have the capacity. So my hip became sore. And as I gradually built up, because that was something that I wanted to do, so there was a demand, an activity that I wanted to do, and I gradually did that, I managed to be able to do it without having discomfort in my hip. And as time went by, times in my life where my hip became painful were times where I was more sedentary, sleeping less, uh, and with higher levels of uh, higher levels of stress in my life. For instance, when I was doing my PhD and I had my, my first son. So I was not sleeping much and trying to, you know, pull out a lot of work, working in the clinic, sitting my bum on the, on the, on the desk for way too long and not exercising enough to counteract that. So that just gives us a, uh, an insight into a couple of elements. One is the fact that, as you nicely described, that what your scan showed uh, or the, the wear and tear that you have doesn't always or doesn't always explain pain uh, and that or when it when it's related to pain it doesn't explain pain by itself and the second aspect it, which is in line with a more uh, contemporary understanding of pain is that pain is not related uniquely to how your body looks or how your body is shaped or how you use your body but it, it's related to uh, the, the beliefs that we have. It's related to the, the social aspects of our lives. It's related to, um, to the emotions that we are uh, going through. And, uh, and for patients, it's a really tricky idea to grasp that these factors can, how can being stressed and sleeping less cause pain in my body? You know, and if we, um, if we simplify it, some of the things such as um, not sleeping well, being sedentary, uh, high levels of stress, and uh, a poor diet, uh, the, one of the uh, significant outputs of those elements is an increase in an inflammatory response in your body. So there's a physiological change in the chemistry of your body. And structures can become sensitive. And sometimes some body parts are a little bit more vulnerable, either because of the activities that you do or because of the, of the structure of your body or past experiences that you had uh, with that particular body part. So for us to, you know, you, 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 if you look at the, our, our uh, paper, you know, the myth is that repetitive loading can, of everyday life can create more wear and tear and damage and pain to the body. You know, that's the myth. And the fact is that actually using your body uh, repetitively in a, in a healthy manner and without protection uh, is, is actually a better way for your body. Similar to muscles that get stronger as you use them, 
muscles that become less stiff as you use them and you stretch them. Other body parts are like that, the knee joints, the tendons, the discs, the shoulder, the neck. Uh, so there's more and more evidence to demonstrate that. Mm. And we need to understand that there are several other factors that can affect how one may feel. You know, and, and when we talk about a biopsychosocial approach, there is, uh, um, for some, there is a perception that we're talking about, uh, you know, that the pain is in the head and uh, it's the psychology and, and it's always about if I'm stressed, I'm in more pain. That, that's not just it. For instance, what we're talking about here today, which is beliefs. If I develop pain and I believe that using my body causes more damage and therefore pain, that will influence how I behave. Mm. If the emotions uh, or my emotional aspect, if I under a significant amount of stress, which changes the chemistry of my body, uh, or if, if I'm naturally anxious, or if I have a healthy uh, a health anxiety, when I develop pain in my body, I will pay more attention to it. I will protect it more, and that will become more bothersome. Mm. So my emotions will affect how I carry my body and how I use it on daily life. Social aspects such as developing pain uh, during a time where you are dissatisfied with your job mm. or you're stressed at work or you've been bullied at work, right? Or you are not participating in the social activities that you used to participate or you're feeling socially isolated. So all these factors, they play a role uh, around the time of pain onset, but also around uh, persistence of pain. Some of these things may, may not be modifiable, but they can be used for the patient and the clinician to understand that there is more to play uh, or there's more to pain than tissue damage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It sort of speaks to how um, how wonderfully complex the the pain system is, and um, some people might find that quite threatening. Uh, I sort of view it almost as the opposite in terms of that means there's so many different things that we can do that can influence how much pain we feel, and also the meaning maybe therefore or the downstream consequences of of um, yeah the meaning we put onto onto pain. Um, you, you talked a little bit before about you know how lifting lifting weights makes your muscles stronger, and, and, and that nice example around with the the neoa as well, um, or knee, knee osteoarthritis and knee pain. And I and I want to kind of hone in on that because I think that's a really central message that that um, I want people to try and understand from from this episode of the podcast, and and certainly um, fact number eight from the the back facts paper. Um, we, we have, like you've, we've talked about today, we have this narrative that our body is, is fragile and, and, you know, it's vulnerable and it's easy to break and it's hard to heal. Um, and, and that's quite a rational and quite a normal thought or belief given the messages that exist in the world. Um, but these are just messages. They're, they're stories. They're maybe not that true, but they're, they're kind of endemic, endemic and, and, um, everywhere, um, so I think it's helpful to sort of talk a little bit about um, this idea that that uh, our, our bodies, you know, our structures really aren't that as fragile as what most people think they are. And and um, you know, when we think about okay, what's the opposite of fragile? Most people would say, well, that's robust. Robust is the opposite of fragile. Uh, and robust, if you define robust, it's like it's like a, a block, a rock, or something that you drop, or you drop and you apply force to it, and it won't break. You apply a stress to it, and it won't break. Um, but but actually, humans are a next step further than robust. Where you know what um, there's an author called, um, he's written a book called Anti Fragile. Nazim Nicholas Taleb um, speaks about humans being anti-fragile, that actually if we put the appropriate stress on our body with the appropriate recovery, then over time we have we add a little bit more stress and then have a more recovery and then add a little bit more stress, we actually get stronger over time. So we're not just robust in the term that we won't break when there's stress on us, but we actually adapt to stress and become um, stronger and more resilient and have more capacity in our structures which is, you know, this idea of anti-fragility. And I think that's kind of the key key message. And we know we, we have evidence that this is the case in, you know, spines as well. 
We know that runners have healthier discs than non-runners. We know that cyclists have healthier disc rowers. Um, and when I say healthier discs, I mean, you know, there's more, high, um, more water content, uh, there's less uh, disc space narrowing. Um, so, yeah, I think it kind of starts to question this idea that the more we use our body, we wear out. Um, in, in actual fact, the complete opposite is true, right? Yeah, and I, and I think that's a wonderful point to... Uh to make heaven and you know if we think about uh, the possibly the origin of this idea for instance for the back uh, bending is uh, is dangerous for the back and even to a point where it's being raised the possibility that we have a, a set number of bends in our back mm. the, the original study that came with that was uh, looking at human cadaver uh, spine, so you cut just the section of the lumbar spine of the lower back and you put in a lab and you've got a machine to bend it, right? So it's a it's a bad structure mm. that you will have a set number of bends. And if you bend anything enough or if you put pressure in, in any uh, structure for enough times, you get a point where it, it, it breaks down, right? And based on that, there was a jump to say that, therefore, human spines have a set number of bends, and human spines, if they bend too many times, they will, they will break. Mm. And uh, fortunately, there's been uh, uh, several studies done in humans that did not reproduce the same results in terms of looking at loads of the spine and et cetera. Uh, but what, that, what we have to remember is that our spines are not moving by themselves. Our spines are part of a whole organism that is inherently made to respond to stimulus. So if we get uh, healthy human beings and you send them off the planet to go to Mars and come back, you know, they, they feel healthy, they're acting healthy, but their bodies became weaker because they didn't have enough stimulus when they're out there. Oh. And now all these, these programs, they have people, uh, when they're away, they're exercising as they can there to come back as healthy as they could. If we get a, my healthy elbow and we put it in plaster for four weeks, I will have a really unhealthy elbow by the end of it. But there is really strong evidence to say that if we stop nourishing a body part, it becomes unhealthy. Oh. And nourishment for the body is movement. And it's movement that you're capable of, uh, of doing. And it's movement that is done regularly, right? And so I'll give you an example of a, of a patient. She's, how old is she? She'll be 68. Young. Huh? Sorry? She's young. She's young, yeah. She's between <laughs> 68 or 72. I, I have in my mind that she's 72, but she looks younger. Yeah. But anyway. And she used to practice uh, yoga on a, on a daily basis. And then she, uh, she had a fall and she hurt her knee. And she ended up having surgery on that knee. She had a, she had a, um, a fracture and it was necessary to have surgery in the knee. And when she came back from it, she felt really fragile, which is natural. And the process of getting her back on her feet, just getting up from a chair and walking, it was a lengthy process. But you could see that person feeling older with time and behaving as if she was older with time. And very quickly going from, I practice yoga every day and age is just a number towards, you know, I feel like I'm getting to my use by date. Mm. I feel like there's not much that I can do with my body anymore. I mm. feel like I lost all that I was doing and now I'm going to have to do, you know, maybe the seniors class in the gym if I can do, if I can go to a gym. So this idea that the, the, the body became really fragile and vulnerable and unable to adapt uh, became a strong theme in her narrative in our encounters and several emails that we exchanged. And as she developed a bit more um, strength in the leg, and mind you, that process wasn't pain-free all the way. That mm. process had discomfort. Yeah. And she had to wrestle with that idea. You know, if my 
leg is healed, why am I feeling pain? Mm. So we are kind of pushing it. Your leg is healed, but the capacity of your leg to tolerate what you need for it to do is pretty small. Mm-hmm. And we, every time we catch up, we are pushing it. So we are, we are making it a little sensitive. And anyway, she bought the idea because every time she pushed it, it was a bit sore, but then she was able to push more and it wasn't as sore. So the experience is what made her continue to move forward. Mm-hmm. And we got to a point where she's doing everyday activities fine and she's back to doing her yoga practice. But something changed that she's going, I feel like I can do a bit more than what I'm doing now. And I feel like I want to I wanna feel a bit stronger. And fast-tracking a few months, she's in the gym lifting weights and loving the fact that she's going under a bar in a squat rack at her age of, age of, let's call it 70, to be in the middle. Mm-hmm. And she's putting big plates and she's lifting weights. She didn't start there. She started by just getting under the bar mm-hmm. and with a very light bar, as a matter of fact, with a broomstick mm-hmm. and then a bar and then some little weights. And, and she's feeling this vitality coming back and feeling younger again. And this narrative of, you know, my friend invited me to go for a bushwalk I haven't done this, but it, you know, I should be able to do it. And mm. this, it's almost like it's unlocking the, the, this uh, natural human capacity, all right? It was a slow process, but I think her story is it's quite nice because uh, it goes from being able to being disabled for a while and resurging again and feeling more able than she was before. Mm. So, it, you know, it goes to, to reflect what you're saying, that if you stimulate the body, the body continues to grow. Mm. And, of course, we all have our limitations. And we all have um, uh, our capacities to do that is different. And our capacity may be different as well based on our experiences. You know, I saw, I saw another lady who had uh, hip pain. And she was really struggling to strengthen her legs by doing our traditional exercises of squats and lunges. And, and she was adopting some postures that she felt really unnatural with. And when I asked her about her, her past experience, you know, in the past, when did you feel strong? Oh, I used to dance. I used to dance a lot and I felt really strong in my legs. I felt really strong in my body. And I said, can you show me some of the things you used to do when you danced? And very quickly, that tapped into somewhere in her memory where she embodied that memory. And she started enacting a few of the drills and the, and the exercise that she used to do that she felt natural and she felt good. And very quickly, she started developing strength. Mm. So the pathway to, to, to feeling anti-fragile uh, may not be the same for everyone. It may have similar principles, which are to do it gradually, to do it regularly and be consistent with the belief that as you continue to do it, your body can strengthen up. Mm. And and of course, this is easier said than done. And I imagine there'll be people listening to this and saying, look, I try to exercise. And every time I exercise, I was sore. Every time I did this, I was sore. And then there there is the way in which you do this. There is the way in which you perform these activities. You know, going back to that gentleman that I mentioned at the beginning, whose life was very disabled and we managed to, you know, sit for a while. Uh, I asked him about some of the things that he tried and he said, look, I, I was really keen to get on a bike because I have a bike and I have a stationary bike at home. But I tried it several times and I, I'm, I really struggled. And I do you mind if we have a look at that? And he said, said back to me, do you mind if we don't? I said, why is that? He goes, because the thought of me sitting on a bike, it frightens me because I'm mm-hmm. kind of going on a, on, a, on, a, on a good period now and I don't mm-hmm. want to fear. And I asked him how fearful he was of trying the bike. And he said, I'm an 11 out of 10 because I'm dead sure that I'll be sore afterwards. Anyway, long story short, we sat on the bike and the way that he was sitting on the bike was highly provocative. He was trying to adopt, adopt a posture that wasn't even his natural. You know, I put a mirror next to him and I said, do you recognize this person on the bike? And so that's, 
that's not how I used to be, but that's what I have to do. And I said, show me how you used to be. And once he relaxed into his more natural posture. So what was he doing? Sorry. What was he doing um, when he was on the bike with high fear? What did he look like? He was, he was trying to sit really straight and keep his back straight and having uh, weight on his arms, but keeping his chest up mm-hmm. and just really protective of his yeah. back. And, guarded and tense. Yeah. Yeah. Guarded and tense. And right. he's, old natural posture was something a bit more relaxed, just just kind of, as he said, I used to sit on my bum and now I feel like I'm sitting on the edge of the seat mm. and I'm holding myself with my with my back. Mm. That was his, um, his interpretation of that experience. And we sat there for 12 minutes and at the end of it, he said, it actually feels good. Mm. It feels good that I'm doing this. So, uh, the things that we are talking about here today, uh, the pathway to get there, it's different for everyone. And some people, they may need uh, some help along the way. They may need medication. They may need uh, injections to create a window of opportunity for them to exercise because they're too sensitive. Uh, they may need um, psychological support and others may even need surgery. Uh, but the important thing is that because you try to exercise and you try to use your body, and it doesn't work for you, uh, you got to probably start looking at um, someone that can guide you and coach you towards learning how to use your body in a, in a perhaps in a different way or someone that challenges your beliefs mm-hmm. uh, and enables you to, to think in a different way when you are using your body. Mm-hmm. And I think that's our, our greatest uh, challenge as clinicians to guide patients to... Uh, to change their mindset towards uh, that you know using the body is good for the body, mm-hmm. and, and that creating that regularity and doing it gradually. Yeah, and you can see how um, you know for that that gentleman's experience of being on the bike and it actually feeling good, that um, straight away kind of updates his system or his understanding of okay, well if if this feels good. I thought it was, you know, I was 11 out of 10 out of fear and I was almost certain that I was going to flare up, but it actually feels good. You can see how that updates his beliefs around what, what is, what's happening in his body and maybe his disc bulge isn't really as the problem that he thought it was. Yeah. And conversely, you can see how easy it is for people to get in, in a loop of, okay, I feel pain uh, and when, I, when I'm on the bike, I feel pain, so I should never do that and I feel pain now bending as well as not just sitting and twisting as well, so I'd never do that. And then because you never do it, your structures don't get used to it or they're not conditioned for it. So when you try to do it or something similar, it doesn't take as much for you to flare up and then you get more pain and you can get down this sort of negative sort of spiral as well. Um, and you mentioned sort of before nourishment of, of joints and things like that. And I think that's um, like highlighted nicely by, by an analogy of, of a sponge. Our cartilage is like sponges. If you leave a sponge just by itself, it can't absorb water. It can't absorb, you know, and nourishment and get rid of uh, waste products. But squeezing a sponge and repeatedly squeezing it and letting it go helps it absorb, um, you know, yeah, all the nourishment that it needs and gets rid of all the sort of waste products. And, and um, the other thing that you sort of talked about that sort of triggered something for me was, um, you know, this idea that we have a number of bends left. And, you know, I've heard plenty of stories of patients who come and say, yeah, look, we've had a manual handling course at work and, and they showed us a paper clip and they just kept bending it or gave us all a paper clip and we just kept bending it and bending it and bending it until, we, until it broke. And then they said, that's our spine. So it's, um, it's no wonder that these people come, um, that, that's quite a natural uh, response is then to be frightened of that. Um, and, and I think it's really important that we, that we quash, squash that belief and, and um, you know, we, we adapt with, with load, with the appropriate load. We aren't like paper clips. Like I said, we don't wear out with more movement. We're, we're the opposite. Um, we, we get nourishment and get healthier and get stronger with, with appropriate load and appropriate recovery. Um, I think sorry, there's, there's yeah. two elements as well that it's really important to uh, to to bring through. One is that uh, we are not talking about um, just pushing through pain. We're not talking about just doing it. Uh, we are talking about uh, understand 
what contributes to your to your to your problem and try to target all these factors because for some people it's nothing to do with how they move they move fine they're not guarded and mm. they still have pain um, so that's a, an important aspect uh, the second aspect is that uh, it is also common that some people will present with changes in their scans that are relevant and associated with their pain presentation and so it's at no point we are ignoring the, the biology uh, but even then what we know is that if you have changes in your skin and they are a result of either a traumatic uh, uh, incident um, or they, uh, they, they appear gradually and they have like a sensitized nerve tissue or, or, or you're, you know you have back and leg pain um, that even then movement is helpful in healing for those structures. Mm. It's just a matter of the dose in which you're going to give that. Mm. So the dose of the movement. So movement kind of, it's never out of the question. Uh, and, and also the understanding of all the factors that can create that. So we know from research um, to, to date that something like leg pain or, or um, like a, when your nerve is irritated, uh, a lot of times that is related to like an inflammatory change in your body rather than something that was damaged and is now pushing on the nerve, mm. especially if that pain occurred gradually without a specific incident. You know, in the past, we used to always think that it's related to something pushing on the nerve. And of course, your clinician will examine you and determine if that's the case or not. But if it's, there's nothing pushing on the nerve, where your nerve is sensitized, uh, then we look at other factors that could be creating a, an inflammatory context, mm. such as your sleep, your mood, your, um, your, you know, if you're resting too much or if you're doing too much mm. or if you have high levels of stress. Or, so we look at all those factors and going, well, these are some of the strategies that we can uh, work on to create an anti-inflammatory environment or mm. context uh, and movement will be a part of it. And then you gradually build up as the nerve comes down. Mm -hmm. So that's just to exemplify that at times, yes, the body uh, has changed or the body is damaged. And in those cases, uh, we'll continue to do a gradual return to activities. But when we fear and become overprotective of our bodies, uh, that can become highly unhelpful. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. That was, um, it's really important. And um yeah, highlights the, that uh, it's sometimes these things are related. Um, you know, things like pathology is certainly an important thing to consider uh, as part of the bigger, a big picture, a, a, a sort of a whole person understanding of someone's condition. Um, the, the podcast is called Empowered Beyond Pain for a reason. We're hoping that through these podcasts we can um, give people understanding and update people's knowledge around the modern research and, and you know, our experiences both being researchers and clinicians uh, and, and hopefully people, you know, I think the, the key message here um, from, from this episode here is that, you know, that, that relationship between pain and damage isn't that strong as what, it, what we thought it was um, and that, you know, you, your body doesn't wear out with, with, more, with more movement. Do you have any final kind of comments to speak to this fact? Um, no, I think it's... Uh to add to the sentence you just said, I think the body craves movement mm -hmm. uh, and the body gives signs when it's not moving enough and when it's not stimulated enough. Mm. Um, and the other element as well that I think it's important to highlight is that this, we talked about some patients' journeys, right? And for some, that, that new experience, that positive, safe experience can happen quite quickly. And for others, it takes more time. And so the journey is different to everyone. Uh, and it's not, we're, we're not here saying that it should be easy. Uh, uh, for some, it's easier. For others, it's really difficult. Um, and it's important as well to, to understand that probably, you know, the, the clinician's job is to, to coach the person so they develop new habits and new strategies that they can self-manage their conditions by themselves. Uh, and occasions in which your pain flares up 
uh, a lot of these beliefs, they tend to come back. Uh, and some of the protective behaviors tend to come back. And these are times where it's really important to reconnect with your clinician uh, and to review uh, what's happening and to make sense of, of that flare-up. And that kind of, uh, it's a nice segue for, your, for our next myth, which talks about pain flare-ups. Beautifully done, JP. Um, I'll, I'll, yeah, exact, I was going to say the exact same thing. Next week's episode is all about um, pain flare-ups. And, and uh, yeah, look, everyone's journey is, is individual. And, and um, that's why um, it's, it is so important to get an individualised assessment for, for you know, whatever health, XYZ health condition that you've got. Um, awesome. Thanks so much for your time, JP. It's lovely Thanks. to have you back on. Uh, and we look forward to chatting to you again soon. Fantastic. Thanks, Kevin. So there you have it, the end of another episode. Thanks again for tuning in. My take home, the inaccurate belief that painful movement, loading and bending causes wear and tear is a really imprisoning or limiting belief that can result in unhelpful movement patterns and prevent us from engaging in the very things that help us recover. If you'd like to know more, you can visit the show notes page at www.bodylogic.physio forward slash podcast or contact us via EBP podcast on social media. Until next time, have a fantastic and fun fortnight and remember to ask, is there more to pain than damage? Please note what you heard on this episode of Empowered Beyond Pain is strictly for information purposes only and does not substitute personalised, high-value care from a licensed and trusted healthcare practitioner. We are all individuals and need to be assessed and managed as such. Theme music generously provided by Fervin and Cash.